Hey folks, welcome back to Shoot Side. I'm your host, Ferris Simon. It's good to be back. And uh, before we get into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsors over there, SC Online Sales, for being the title sponsor of Shoot Side. SC Online Sales was established in 2013 when co-founders Dave Geyer and Roland Shoemaker recognized the opportunity to take online livestock sales to the next level. And after investing 18 months of blood, sweat, tears, and capital building a custom sales platform from the ground up, SEO hosted its first online sale in the fall of 2014. And what started as a dream sketched out on a notepad has grown to a team of 30 talented employees with sales reps located all across the country. While their innovative sales platform that is very user-friendly and works on your cell phone better than anything else in the market is certainly an asset, what really sets SEO apart is their team culture and commitment to customer service. And I can attest to that personally. I've bought and sold on this platform and it's my favorite one to operate on. Because of these things, SEO has truly fulfilled its mantra of becoming the place to be for online livestock auctions. Regardless of species, they too do semen sales, fulfillment, junior fair livestock auctions and add-ons. The list literally goes on. Every step of the way, when you're dealing with SEO, whether it's booking your sale, submitting information, collecting settlement, or settling up on a purchase you made, the SEO team is dedicated to their customers, and I think that's what makes them so great. Visit sconlinesales.com today to view the upcoming sales, or if you have something to sell, book your next online sale. It all happens here, literally. So today's going to be a solo episode all by my lonesome uh, here in the studio. Uh, we've done a few of these before in the past, and if it's something that you guys uh, don't care for or uh, were hoping for a guest or expecting a guest today, I'm sorry. I guess you could shut the episode off now. But I do, uh, I guess I would ask you to hang out for a few minutes and just kind of see how this gets started because I actually think today um, it has the opportunity to be a good episode. Obviously, I haven't recorded it when I do these ones by myself like this. Uh, we haven't, I haven't done anything other than make some notes, but let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to get into today and, uh, we can, uh, we can go from there. So if you guys, and I hope you are, are the loyal listeners that listen to every single episode of shoot side, you would know that, oh, three, four, five episodes ago, we had a two part we did a two-part episode, and we talked about uh, checking heat on one episode, and then the second episode was about some mating decisions and things like that. And in the beginning of the first episode, I made the comment that at some point in the future, uh, we're going to have a three-person panel. is going to be me, Ty Webster, and Jeff Boddicker, and we're going to have a discussion, and the premise of that discussion is... Uh, club calf versus uh, maternal uh, cow herd and the pros and cons of those because uh, what two better guys have that discussion both those guys are, are good friends of mine both those guys have really nice cows in, in differing programs and if you've listened to season one uh, at all Ty came on two times and those are maybe some of the most loved and highly uh, uh highly praised episodes those are some of the most fun ones i've had especially the second one that we did and if anyone of you have ever met jeff boddicker 
and interacted with that guy. Um, must see TV. Awesome dude. Fun to talk to. You know, Boddicker's is one of my favorite places to stop every fall. And even if he had a one calf, you know, dairy calf sale, one dairy steer calf for sale every year, I would still go in there just to talk to JB and hang out with JB. But anyway, the point of telling you all this is that, uh, as I've mentioned before, at times it's a little tough to get things scheduled, and I had no idea what I was going to release this week. I had no content. We burned up all the, the pre-produced stuff, all the, the stuff we had in the can, and today that I'm recording this Saturday, June 26, and I got nothing for Tuesday. And last night, uh, Ty calls me because all week I've been texting with these guys and talking to JB about getting on the calendar for this week because I was hoping I could get something recorded for next week. And I have about four or five different guests that uh, that have agreed to come on that I think can be really killer episodes. We have the notes and things kind of done, but it's the junior national run right now, kind of the summertime blues, as I like to call it in some ways. Things are busy and I get it. People are, they got stuff going on, as do I. It's been really busy for me too. And, and it's been a little challenging to kind of get synced up. And like I said, I'm out of content, but I'm like, hey, I think, you know, we can probably get JB on. And we talked to him earlier this week and he was all for it, but didn't get him scheduled. So Ty calls me and says, hey, what's the deal? Are we going to do this? And this was last night, Friday night. I'm like, man, I, I hope so, because I think it could be killer. And, uh, you know, some people, when they've never been on, before they get a little bit apprehensive and and maybe that's where JB is right now. But when I talked to him the other day, and this is the conversation we're having, I said, when I talked to him the other day, he seemed all gung ho about it. And I really hope he comes on because I think he'll be great. And, and I hope that the listeners that have never met Boddicker get to meet him and, and see him for who he is, which is a truly awesome individual. But, um, I said, it doesn't look like it's going to happen this week. And, I'm talking to Tom like I have no idea what we're going to put out because I I got nothing. Um, I have this episode, uh, another episode that I'll probably end up recording tomorrow that's been requested a couple times, and uh, maybe that'll come out the following week or some point in the future about kind of getting started clipping and fitting and things of that nature. We get that request quite a bit. Which, on a side note, is somewhat comical because um, I am no Edward Scissorhands by any means. I mean, I can get the job done, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. But uh, anyway, that's probably something we'll get into at some point this season. And I'm kind of told Ty, said I've been so busy, hadn't had really much of a chance to think about things or be as creative, um, having trouble scheduling things and this and that and really don't know maybe we'll just take this week off I hate doing that when we're in kind of the middle of the season but you know sometimes things just don't happen and we get to talking a little bit about some of the different ideas that we had and Ty comes up with this idea that uh, that really hit me really um, in the goods if you will and I thought man that's a that's a good concept. And and the concept is the premise of this episode. And, and so I'm going to do one. And then if, if it goes well and people like it, then I guess we can do more of them. The concept is 
Well, let me back up a second. We we get guests on, and when I come on, we we like to shine a light a lot on the successes of the guests and the accomplishments. And let's face it, who who doesn't like to reminisce about the good times and and when things went correctly and we won this show or the turning point and this that uh, in our programs? And we've had those moments on this podcast with a variety of guests, and we've brought things up. Uh, that have been really positive that way. And I don't want you to think we're going to go negative or anything like that. That's not what we do here. But we, we've, we've shined uh, and propped up a lot of uh, instances and shown light on a lot of instances of guests where things went well, where we won this show or this or that, and the successes of people. But if you haven't learned this lesson, I'm going to tell you, and this is what Ty brought up, I hope you would learn it soon. And it's the it's the idea that you you learn a lot more from failures and the hard times than you do from the successes and the good times. You learn more about who you are and then you also improve a lot more. And we we kind of heard it a little bit um in a way, on Dr. Faber's podcast, if you listen to that, his episode. If not, I highly recommend you rewind, stop this episode, go back and listen to that one because I'm guessing that one's going to be better than this one. But we, he talked about how when they got beat at a show, him and you know his his children, when they were beat at a show, they kind of had a little roundtable discussion, talked about the, you know what was said about the calf and kind of retooled, re-racked, figured out how to better present their cattle, better feed their cattle, whatever it was, and then come back next time and be more successful. And that's really what we're talking about is, you know, last, anytime you have a success, yeah, you might learn something, but when things go terribly wrong, those seem like the moments, if you utilize them correctly, those seem like the moments and the times that you could learn the most from if you if you can survive through them. And we had Ty and I had this discussion of how y- you see people that are really successful, whether regardless of business industry, that maybe they were on the ropes financially at one time and they got it figured out and they came back, or you know something went really wrong within you know their cattle program and fought back. And they're stronger because of it. And I think if you, and it's well documented that if you can survive those tough times and learn from them, those are the very strong teachable moments. So that his idea was, what if we got on there, had people come on there and talk about things that went really bad for them and what they learned from it? I was like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. So we hang up the phone where we talked about a little more it was getting late, so we we hung up the phone and and uh, I was like, "Hey, let me chew on that. You chew on it, or whatever." And you know, I couldn't really think at that time last night of what um, of like one that really came to mind for me. And of course, there's all sorts of little ones of, "Hey, I." should have treated that calf and I didn't treat that calf and it ended poorly or I fed this calf this you know little things along the way but when I woke up this morning 
still with no episode thinking I was going to record this one about, you know, um, clipping and fitting and things, which I'm still have the notes on still going to do. Um, and it hit me of, of an instance, um, that I had that several years ago, that was maybe the most important learning thing for me, or one of the most important monumental learning, uh, moments for me. And I want to tell you guys about that experience. Now, it's not as much related to this story isn't very much related to actually feeding show calves. It's really more uh, cattleman, uh, cow person related. So I'm going to tell you guys a little bit of background uh, to help kind of provide some color to the story. I'm going to tell you the story and then what we learned from it. But this was uh, something that had a lot of impact on me. This management decision has haunted me for years and it's still um, still haunting me. I'm still dealing with it today. It's been five or six years now. But I think it changed the course of the way we do things here for the better. And we've been a lot stronger since. So the year is 2016. It's like summer 2016. Um, and let me give you a little bit of information about our, uh, our grass season out here. And you'll hear me talk about this every now and again, how it's hot and dry, hot and dry, hot and dry where I live. And that is the truth from about June till October, hot, dry, no rain. We don't have summer forage in my area. Most people in California that have green summer forage either live way up north or they have access to irrigated ground, which I do not have. We have what what is called native pasture here. So the green season, it normally starts raining in October 1st of November. The grass gets really good in January. And you know it'll be start to green up in November, December, but it really starts getting good after the turn of the year. And it's its strongest in March, April, and then it hardens up in May and it's gone. So most commercial cattlemen, most people out here will calve in the fall because those calves, when their rumen develops and things and they're old enough to digest the grass is in March, April, February, March, April, and the amount of gain that you can put on those feeder cattle and it's the good kind of like feeder cattle gain where they kind of like frame up and they'll be fleshy too, but they won't get overly fat. They'll frame up and, and put pounds on and the amount of gain that they put on those cattle is ridiculous. Same with uh, stalkers and yearlings and things of that nature. So that's, that's the way most people do it out here. Spring calving on native pasture is not suggested or, and it's not really done out here because you got to have those cows out on that dry feed all summer and or supplement them significantly with calves on them or do like what we've ended up doing which is feed them with a feed wagon we supplemental feed them with a feed wagon and we've talked about that on some facebook videos and i don't know if we've talked about it much on the podcast but basically 50 to 60 percent of of their nutritional requirements in the summertime if they're a cow with a calf on their side comes from uh, a our mixer wagon. So, um, out here, important thing to this story is that we have, uh, 
it's really a fall calving environment. And we used to calve in the fall. When I first graduated, I graduated college in 2009. Uh, went to school in the South and had a lot of Southern uh, friends and outlets to sell those cattle. When I came home, the majority of the cows and stuff that we calved were in the fall because we we're raised trying to raise fallborns, and that was a complete disaster. Some people don't know this, but when I moved home or when I got graduated from school, I lived in Los Angeles for four years, almost full time. I would say, well, during the week it was full time, and most weekends, but. I, we didn't have near as many cows. We had 20 or 30 cows at that time. And, uh, my mom and my sister helped a lot with them and a hired guy, Val, who's been with us for a long time. They kind of did stuff. I'd come home, breed and vaccinate and, but it wasn't near what it is now. And we were calving in the fall and calving in August. And we thought that was the thing to do. And boy, we had a lot of attrition. I mean, keeping calves alive in August that's still something that I'm not willing to attempt. So we talk about things that went poorly in terms of um, percentage calf crop weaned that we learned a long time ago in 2009 that I'm still not willing to do. Even to this day, we've taken that lesson and said we don't calve until after Labor Day just because of the heat. It's it just too hard on them. And, and we were just struggling to keep calves alive. So we used to calve in the fall before 2016 and did it for a year or two said this is like beating our head against the wall we're not going to do this any longer and really shifted everything to springborns because that is what we were selling um that's what most of the customers out here want are springborns that's when the online sale thing started kicking off and we started kind of doing our own online sales around 13 or 14 i think it was and said hey screw it. We'll figure out a way to supplement these cows through the summer. I'm not dealing with this, you know, calving cows when it's 110 outside and trying to keep these calves alive and and not making my mom and my little sister deal with it either. So a few years go by, I end up moving back home. We're building the herd. And at this time we probably have 40, 45 cows. And when we started getting serious, we did a lot of uh, a lot of maternal like cow builder type embryos and uh, matings just to kind of build up the cow herd and get some numbers and quality behind it. And in 2015 was the first year that we kind of turned some of those cows loose, those younger cows, and flushed them club calf and see what they were doing. And and really, I will still say to this day that. 2015 was one of my favorite calf crops I ever had. And maybe that's a bad thing to say that it's been that long since I had one. I was that excited. And I really don't know if it was the quality in hindsight. As much, I mean, the quality was good. We had a lot of uh, winners and a lot of firsts out of that calf crop. But I think a lot of it was validation that, hey, what we're, what we're kind of working on here, I think can work. But there, it's hard with small numbers to make those decisions of, how many of these embryos do we put in to progress the herd and make more females that can make those calves like we just had in 2015? Or do we put these embryos in that are club calf and make these club calf matings so that we can actually cash flow? And it's it's a balancing act that we're still trying to figure out. And it's hard because the value of these calves are so subjective. It's It's really not 
tied to to too much. I guess it's tied somewhat to the corn market and commodities market and the other ancillary businesses that the consumer in this business is involved in to a certain extent, but it's hard to say it's 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 hard to model, I should say. After been doing this for ten years, like you can kind of know, but you never really know exactly how things will or won't sell, and even within a particular sale group. But nonetheless, that's where we were. Was we didn't have enough recips, didn't, um, and you never feel like you have enough recips. I can tell you that we had eggs stored up, and we're we were kind of in that flux position of. Do we continue to keep trying to build the herd in terms of numbers or or do we go after cash flow or do we try to ride that fence where it feels like maybe you're not doing either of them uh, good enough? So in 2016, um, picked up some more ground and had kind of a, a unique opportunity arise where two people that I knew very well um, that had nice cows, lost some lease ground, and they were going to have to beef their cows. And it was a total of 90 head. And I was needing recips. These were fall calving cows, and I needed some recips. And I was like, man, like, went and looked at the cows, thought they were nice cows, and uh, well taken care of, was familiar, somewhat familiar with the herds. And I was thinking, I said, well, now here, here's an opportunity if I can figure out a way to utilize these cows that we can put in a lot more embryos. And in those times, I was probably flushing and freezing at a rate um, that is more aggressive than now relative to the number of recips we had. I try to run a little leaner now, but I think we've all been there where you got a cow you like and you try her to a hundred different matings and and you and you got five uh, available recips and you kind of just stack a lot of stuff up. And it wasn't a lot of club calf embryos. I've never been someone that stacks a lot of of terminal matings or club calf matings because I think I think those trends shift so quickly um, or can shift so quickly that it doesn't benefit to store those if you don't think you're going to get them in in the next year or two. Um, you know, we got cows on that start on shots actually tonight. Some of them are getting club calf matings and we're freezing those embryos, but those embryos are going in this fall or next spring is the idea. It's not something I'm stacking up thinking I'm going to use beyond next year. Whereas my thought process on maternal embryos has always been is good cattle or good cattle. And a good female is timeless, whereas a good show steer is good within a certain specified period of time. A good female, it, it can be good 10 years ago and she's good 10 years from now. They're timeless. It's a like a timeless elegance thing. So it doesn't bother me as much if I think it's a really good maternal or female driven mating to store those embryos. And and store them and put them in five years from now or whenever you kind of have the spots or the room. So we had these embryos stacked up in the tank and we had some maternal sibs and full sibs of some of these embryos and we were anxious to get more of them in. 
these two people I knew were losing some pasture ground and was like, well, really would like to get my hands on these cows, but did not have the money to just straight up buy the cows. Didn't have the money straight up buy the cattle. Didn't have the cash. Didn't have the credit um, or the financing ability to do it either. And we had done a little bit of um, rental and, and lease cows, uh, a little bit. We'd done like 10 or 15 of them up to that point where someone else owns the cows, give them a couple hundred bucks a year. You run the cow, you get the calf. Because the reason we're doing it that way is high quality calf buyback programs um, are hard to find out here. I think they're hard to find anywhere, but they're especially hard to find out here. And um, I kind of like to to be fairly hands-on. And when you're I've never found the place out here where I felt comfortable someone else calving um, my embryo calves. Now, there's outfits that do that I know in the Midwest that are very good at it and very sought after. And that's why their their waiting list, if you call those places, you know, is several hundred people long or several thousand embryos long. But they're they're hard to find and they're hard to be good for a reason. So, the idea was to rent these cows and uh, to run them. And I had this idea of, well, I don't know that I need all 90 of these. I'm going to take these cows. I'm going to run them. And I could probably sell some slots and put some other embryos in for other people and sell them those calves back and kind of make all this work. But the idea was that because they were in the fall and they were supposed to calve like in October and stuff like that when things are pretty nice that I would have to feed these cattle less. I'm not going to put in club calf matings. I'm going to slug in all these maternal matings I've had just sitting in my tank. And I'm going to raise these maternal deals in the fall. And then eventually I'm going to roll them to the spring. And eventually I'm just going to kind of move them over, roll them to the spring. So that was the premise. And it made sense because I didn't have the cash. I figured I could feed them less because I'm looking at all my neighbors that run commercial cows. They're not feeding their cows. And by this time I'd owned a feed wagon, wasn't feeding them near as much as what, uh, what it looks like. I'm feeding my stuff in the summertime. And I'm like, here's a, here's a way to make this work. So they send the pots up with these cows, these 90 head. And I make a few calls and I, I try to get some people to put some, uh, put some of these embryos in and thank the good Lord that nobody did because it really didn't end up all that good. So here's what happened. We, uh, I, I run these cows out there and that year, unlike some years, we actually had some moisture. Uh, I remember having good moisture and, uh, those, those cows all came with the calves on them already. I think they shipped them up like in September October, something like that. They already had little calves on them. And we were going to put embryos in to start calving in October, the 1st of October. So we actually got some early moisture. There was some uh, dormant old forage out there in those pastures we put them. And uh, my goal was to, to minimal, minimal feed these things. And if you've listened to this, any of these episodes, especially the one with the Ackley, you probably have a sense of where this is going. So we we kick them out there um you know they got their free choice mineral i put protein tubs out there and i remember going out there and checking them and 
we had some green forage coming up. We we're setting these cows up and uh, had them spread out over, you know, a couple pastures. And I remember driving through them. I remember those calves looking really good, but I remember the, the cows being just maybe a little thrifty looking just a little on the leaner side. And, uh, was like, man, I, I don't know if I'm doing this right, but man, those calves look good. You know, uh, th- those all look fine. So we, uh, we run them in, we set those cows up, we get heats on them. Heats are all good. And we, we slug in 90 embryos over a couple days in these cows and, um, kick them back out in those same pastures and, and, uh, keep going and checking them. And, and those pastures weren't necessarily close up. We put those bulls out there with them. So we really didn't get to see up close how many repeat heats and things of that nature we saw, you know, we didn't really have our eyes on them because they weren't really that close. So we had kind of really not a whole lot of idea. And we were going through the tubs and this, that, and the other. And, uh, so we put those embryos probably in December, into December. And, uh, I remember my first sign of trouble was we were at a show and this was at near the end of January. And I was talking with, um, this gentleman who his family, they still buy cows or calves, show calves. Um, the boy, their older son is aged out, but their daughter still shows. And they're very uh, talented at, at running commercial cows and very successful, been doing it for a long time and run some volume. And we were chatting about forage availability and this, that, and the other. And I brought up how I was managing these cows. And I remember, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but I remember the look on his face on when I was explaining what I was doing. And I was like, that's not, that's not the look that we're looking for. I, he, that's a look of, uh, I don't want to say it was scared, but it was like, a, oh, you know what? Like, this isn't going to be good. So kind of went home. But at this point, you're kind of pot committed. Those embryos have been in for 40 days. You've kind of managed them the way they managed them. I remember going out there again, looking at those cows and it was a cold, uh, cold January. And that'll kind of slow down the forage growth a little bit out here and looking at them cows. And I was like, boy, I don't know. Like they look a little thin. Those calves still look good, but those cows look a little thin. And I don't know. I don't know if, uh, what to expect. So there in February, we gather those cows and we, and we're going to, preg check them. And, uh, I really hope if you haven't had a day like this, I hope you, I hope you don't, um, you know, and in one way, this day was really, really good for us. And one day it was terrible. And we pregged those cows and we, um, it was like a, like a 25 or 30% conception rate on 90 embryos. I really think, um, we could have settled more embryos if we would have just taken the eggs out of the tank and thrown them at the sides of the cows. And and we probably would have been money ahead than what, how we ended up being. And the reason I say that you never want to have those days is because it, it just feels like a gut punch. I mean, there's, 
very few things in, in this business that feel as bad as running cows through and having them be called rechecks or opens or whatever. When you had this image of grandeur, because the premise was, I'm going to put these 90 embryos in. I'm going to get 65% because that's the national average, 60%. These are all conventional embryos. So six, 60% of 90, that's 54, 55 um, pregnancies. Uh, these are on some of my very best foundation cows. We're at 55 pregnancies, uh, embryo pregnancies. And then 50% of those are going to be heifer calves, which we're really after. Maybe find a bull or two in there. And we're going to have 15 to 20 of the most gangster replacement females a guy could ask for. Like These things are going to be some straight up ballers. And then when you preg them, you don't even have as many pregnancies as you were hoping for of heifer calves. And not only that, you got open cows, you got ones that are one cycle back, and you realize that all this, these, uh, the value of this assets of these embryos that you had in the tank and all the money that you'd spent over the years and all the money you spent setting these things up and all that that was supposed to being invested back in the herd goes from, you know, assets converting uh, into assets to assets converting into straight up expenses and or liabilities, depending on how you're structured. And I really wanted to throw up, you know, up until that point, I'd had variations of conception rates. I'd never had like the gangster day, the 80 plus percent. I Up until that point, I'd never had that kind of uh, conception day. But we were 60 to 70% solid. I would just say solid. And never, ever had this kind of just, holy smokes, this is bad. So we had one, I guess we probably had one. Uh, we did have one where it was like 55%. That was probably pretty bad. And if you listen to the episode I did about recip selection, talk about putting them in fat, dry cows. And uh, that was a time where we went like 50-50 on that set of cows. Like that, uh, you know, that carve out of cows. That was pretty bad. But I'm here to tell you 25 to 30%. I think I'd rather get, you know, slapped across the face a hundred times and listen to my vet tell me uh, recheck on recheck 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 over and over and have to mark that down and then you know of course you're being excited kid getting your deal going and you told all your buddies you're preg checking 90 of them because you think you're a big dog and then you have to tell them all how terrible it went so that was just insult to injury um, rubbing salt in the wound, which was completely self-inflicted, but nonetheless went terrible. So get a hold of my embryologist and uh, and really tried to figure out what what was what went wrong. So you know had a conception problem, had a finance problem. You know spent all this money, and we we went through things. We tested them for PI. But really, that's that's that wasn't the problem. The problem is the nutrition, right? The problem was nutrition, and the problem was I narrowed it. We we did everything. Okay, there was four things that we identified that could have been a culprit. That we had a PI three calf out there. 
which those PI three shedders, um, I'm not a vet. I don't really understand how this works, but baby, basically if you have those PI shedders out there, it could have a, or a BVD calf. I think it's PI three PI or BVD. You could have a pretty gnarly conception rate like that. So we went and notched every calf out there, sent the tubes off. We didn't have any, any PI calves. The other thing that we thought it could have been is there's a thought amongst some that if you vaccinate your calves with modified, like a hot modified live virus, that there is some transfer of that vaccine from the calf. Even if you're using the same vaccine cow calf, there's some, there's some transfer of that vaccine through the udder of the cow. And if that cow didn't have a good response to that vaccine, you could have, it could knock that embryo out. And, the, and there's some discussion um, and some papers and some that, that believe in that theory. Um, and there, there is actually probably some accuracy of it. To me, if you're going to go down that road after doing this, and we switched actually from vaccinating our calves with modified live to killed vaccine because of this episode. And really, um, and when I say episode, I mean this experience, really, you could probably pick up a few percent perhaps of conception rate, but then you run into the issue of, are your calves truly um, protected as good as you think I or as good as they need to be? So you're giving up protection on the calves that you have on the ground to pick up a percentage or two of conception rate on your embryos. Is it really worth it? And you have to run that cost benefit analysis. For me, as someone that believes that vaccinating with calves, with vaccinating calves with a good modified live vaccine is more important or is better for them than using a killed vaccine. Uh, I, I quit doing that after a year or two, and I was treating more of them and just didn't like the results I was getting with using killed vaccine. And a lot of vets will tell you modified live is better. I will say that there's a lot of ranchers I know that use killed vaccine on their calves and get along good. So I think. It, it's it's having that discussion with your vet and seeing what's better. Um, ultimately, I learned two lessons there. Lesson number one is when you vaccinate your calves with killed vaccine, yes, maybe you pick up a few percentage points. But two, at this ranch, we ended up treating more calves, which increased our death loss, which really negated the point. So we just went back to vaccinating them with modified live. So we're, we've, we've covered two bullet points. I know I'm bouncing around here. One was PIBVD negative. One was our vaccine protocol. It, it could have helped, but not very much. Then it really narrowed it down to um, the quality of the feed they were getting, their nutritional requirements, and mineral. So Around that time, I had a friend of mine uh, help me create a, a mineral program that is custom to this ranch. We pulled forage samples, all this stuff, and we were using a, a prominent um, national brand of mineral, and it was expensive and all this stuff and highly touted, and said, well, I mean, th that could be a problem. I mean, we, I didn't really notice a bump when we switched to it in the first place. So, 
who knows? So we, we switched mineral and then we started managing the feed of those cows. And what I, what I realized, and you know, it sounds so dumb to say it out loud now because it's something I take so seriously. Now it's something we talk about all the time on this podcast, but that quality and quantity that early season forage just wasn't there. And those protein tubs that we had out there weren't, weren't good enough. It wasn't giving those cows what they needed. Now, a lot of those cows, a good chunk of those cows got bull bred when they missed their embryo. And was that was that management practice of of how we did it suitable to get those cattle bull bred it seems that way they did pretty good getting bred up with the bull not great but a lot better than a lot of them got bred on the next cycle we still had a chunk of opens but a lot of them got bred on the next cycle which really to me says okay yes it's good enough that management practice and that nutritional plane was good enough to get them bull bred when a bull is giving them fresh semen live cover. But if you're going to ramp up your program and you're going to transfer embryos and do anything that is advanced um, reproductive technology, your management and your feeding uh, strategies and the diets and everything that you do needs to match the quality of what you're trying to produce. You can't you can't make champagne uh, on a beer budget. It's really hard. It's really tough. Or I shouldn't even say budget. I'm just saying in terms of effort and um, effort and strategy. You can't do great things with a half half wit, half hearted effort. And that's what we learned. You know, thought that we could put these things in the fall and not have to touch them, slide these embryos in there and just let them do their thing. And it's not, we still have fall calving cows this day and we feed the heck out of those cows. We feed them hard to get them bred up. We don't have to feed them after January 15th or so normally, but we feed them hard. We feed them with the wagon. We learned that lesson big time. And, you know, since then, since we've, we've figured out where our nutrition needs to be, we've increased the quality of our mineral program. Our conception rates, for the most part, have been through the roof, with the exception of this fall. Now, this is where I'm telling you I'm still paying for stuff. So, this all transpires in the fall of 2016, spring of 2017. And we cab those cows out in October of 2017 and in hindsight didn't get burned financially as bad as I probably thought we were going to thank the Lord that we had one really good, really good, uh, cool bred red slick sharing steer. Didn't even, wasn't even trying to make a red slick sharing steer. It happened by accident. Um, Frankly, I didn't even think he was that good when he was born. His sister is actually a donor cow for us, 791, but uh, that we just started flushing on. But that steer, I thought he was a just an average dude. Actually, there was three of them born out of that mating. There was two daughters and one bull. The other daughter, she died. She actually, speaking of vaccine, 
she had an adverse reaction to vaccine. It was like a delayed reaction. And after we boosted him one day, found her out back. And that was pretty painful. But we had these three and there were, I thought the daughters were really good. I thought the steer was not very good. And uh, it took Brent Cromwell coming out here. Another guy that's supposed to be coming on the podcast. Talked to him the other day. And gonna if speaking of which, we're gonna take a side now. I know I'm bouncing way all over the place, but if you're friends with Cromwell or JB and you want to hear him on the podcast, give him a little gentle nudge. Just hit him with the text. Say, hey, we'd really like to hear you on there. Really like to hear you on shoot side. And I think that kind of encouragement could get us over the hump. But Crummy comes out. Tells me how good this calf is. I had no idea how valuable red slick sharing cattle were. And if he wouldn't have sold that calf for me for really good money, um, probably really would have been a complete disaster on this, this set of calves. But anyway, the great part that happened, the, the saving grace was we get these embryos calved, what few of them we had. And there were some really nice heifers in there some really nice heifers that were sibs to other donor cows, daughters of donors, maternal sibs to stuff that, uh, that had won big things for us. And I was excited about them. So we developed these heifers. And then to save face, we kept some of the bull bred ones too. They had some qualities that, Hey, we need more recips. These rental cows aren't going to be here forever. And, uh, let's, let's, keep some of these too they had some nice quality they were out of some of our herd bulls and such we keep them we develop them we breed them next fall and our ai breed up or our breed up on these things in general was garbage like it wasn't worth a crap and i was like you've got to be kidding me two years in a row with this stuff like i thought i was over maybe it wasn't two it wasn't back-to-back years yeah i guess it would have been back-to-back years on the flip side, and we were feeding them and doing all this stuff. And I was like, I cannot believe this. Like, we're just not cut out for this fall calving thing, wanting to yank my hair out. On the flip side, the the recips and the other stuff we had had a pretty strong breed up. A lot better than the year before, and I, and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And what I learned was, talking to my vet and then talking to my good friend, John DeClerc, who uh, has a PhD in nutrition. The time he was still at Texas Tech finishing his stuff up, now he's a technical consultant for Prina. He's been on this podcast a couple times. Very intelligent guy. What I've learned was, is that there's this thing, I think it's called neonatal, uh, neonatal or prenatal programming. So the amount of the amount of nutrition that a cow has at different times during gestation will attribute to different things uh, on the development of that calf that's in utero. For a developing bull or heifer while in utero, the time that that nutrition is paramount is during the first trimester. And if you rewind the story, I had terrible nutrition on the, the, those cows from basically October till January, which is the first trimester, really probably till February that year, which is the first trimester of these animals that were in utero. So 
not only did I have poor conception rate when it happened, but I actually had a negative impact on so many of these resulting heifer progeny because they're, they just weren't fertile. Because while they were in utero, the time that they needed good mineral, good nutrition, they needed their mothers to be fed in quality feed on an inclining ration, they, their needs weren't being met. Therefore, the programming of that calf in utero did not occur correctly. So we had a good slug of those seven models that were in a, that didn't breed. They just wouldn't breed. And I thought it was maybe some fluke deal. Like maybe I got, uh, at the time, maybe I got a bad can of semen or something, but they didn't bull breed either. And I rolled them to the spring and there were some more of those that didn't either. And we ended up beefing them. And in talking more with John and talking with my vet, and my vet had seen it at commercial ranches. And this was, this is information that was just starting to come out a few years ago from my understanding. Or it was at least when I became familiar with it, that you'd go to ranches and they just have like kind of a, a big set of heifers that, you know, a, a particular year that was a problem year. And for me, it's the fall 2017s that are that are the problem children around here. Now, with that said, we got a couple out of that group that ended up breeding and ended up being really fertile by just the grace of God. One of them's that 791 cow we've been flushing. 7111 is another one. Uh, we flushed her and she gave 18 eggs. We actually have some calves out of her this spring that are going to be in our fall sales that are are really nice, I think. I think they're among the top end. Um, and some days are, they're my favorite calves depending on the day, but so there was good that came out of it, but again, I'm still paying for it because I had to, to ship those calves flash forward to this year. Some of those bull breads that I kept, I are, they were coming on three and that's when, uh, I give them their first shot at an embryo. So I'll breed normally what I do with my recips around here, the ones that we raise, I calve them two times. I AI breed them two times. And then for their third calf, I'll try them with an embryo to get a little bit of history on them. And a lot of these had pretty good history, but they did not take embryos. And I think it's a, I think it's a combination of a couple things. Uh, looking back at it in hindsight, I think I put six or seven embryos in that group. And I think I went 33%. So just like their mamas. And I was like literally having flashbacks. and looking at it, their moms didn't take embryos. That's why I had those ones that coupled with their first trimester, their program to be less fertile than everything else. So the seven, the fall 2017s continue to be a problem. On top of that, this fall, I had garbage conception rate this fall in my embryos too. And all things we know better, and it's 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 things we should learn and should know. Put embryos in dry, open cows. That was dumb. So the ones that did good were the ones that had calves on them. These fall twenty seventeens dry, open cows really screwed me. So, um, yeah, I guess do what I say, don't do what I do. Um, so takeaway so far: nutrition, things I learned, nutrition paramount. Knew that before I or learned that the hard way. 
mineral, paramount. And then the impacts of what poor nutrition can do to you further down the line. I'm four years away from making that mistake. Five years. Five years away from making that mistake. And we're still paying for it. And speaking of paying for it, for those that are going in this rental, doing the rental cow, I think in a lot of ways it worked because there was no way I could have afforded those cows. And in a lot of ways, we got our hands on some genetics or created some genetics or continued some genetics, I should say, that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to to have if I wouldn't have rented these cows. In a lot of ways, it was good. But here's where I really went wrong on this setting this deal up. The reason I liked renting the cows is because I didn't have enough money to do it, but or didn't have enough money to buy the cows outright. And what I didn't account for, I didn't think through. The cows were the 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 deal was the cows were going to be here for a specified number of years. The cows come in with a calf on their sides, and. I would pay like trailing 12. So I would pay basically after I bred them up and they'd been here and then I'd pay like retroactively based on what was still there. I didn't pay up front and get a credit, but they came with calves. We bred those cows. The people that owned those calves shipped those calves. They got those calves and then they got a rent check from me. And I think it wasn't really trailing 12. It was like trailing six. So I got the cows like in September, I'd pay them um, on what was there in June or something like that, if I remember correctly. And then I get those calves that fall. Here's the problem. And here's what I was paying to run those cows an extra. I'd, by the time they left, I ended up paying to run them an extra season when I didn't get that last calf. So what I mean by that is I didn't get the first calf because that wasn't my calf, but I paid the runner until I got my first calf. But the last time I bred that cow, I didn't get that calf because the people that own that cow take that calf back or they take the cow back with the calf in utero. In both all those instances, they sent me some semen. We bred them, turned their bulls out on them. But while the, my last calf was on those cows' side, and I obviously want to take care of that calf. I want to manage that calf because that's what's of value to me. I am putting in a tremendous amount of expense feeding that cow, giving her premium mineral, all that stuff that I don't get the benefit of that. And I didn't set it up that way where they would pay me back or anything like that because I didn't even think about it till we were all done. I didn't get the benefit of that to cash a check on the calf that was in that belly that I technically did the majority of the work and had uh, about 50 to 60, 70, probably 50% of the expense into. So if I were to do that situation, I don't really do that rental deal anymore. Um, We're capitalized enough and, and having a volume now that it's just not something that I could do. And it was a good thing to do it at a time, but I would, for those that are looking at doing that, I would I would structure it differently. How exactly I would do it, I don't know. I would need to sit down and run the numbers. I'm a lot better at 
evaluating finance now than I was five or six years ago and understanding where the risks lie. And, and that's probably because, um, probably because I, I lost money on this deal and it was painful. And I'm looking at my books like, holy smokes, that was a terrible deal to get into. It was good in some ways. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad it happened. It was good on many levels. Learn what not to do on a lot of situations. Learn the hard way. Uh, it was painful. My pocketbook, painful to your pride, painful. Um, uh, you know, you think you, in this business, once you think you got something figured out, this business will show you that you don't know a lot of times. So learned a lot of valuable lessons. It forced me to figure out how to better manage my cow's nutritional plane. It forced me to create a better mineral program for what we're doing around here. Um, revalidated our vaccine program. And it taught me lessons about the importance of that nutritional plane, not only to the immediate future of that conception rate, but also what it can do if you're a program like us that actively retain females, how important that is to the next generation that you're creating. So um, that's the story. And I guess uh, thanks for listening. I hope I hope uh, I hope you as the listener got something good out of that, or um, you know can learn along from my lessons, and, and hopefully that you don't have to experience um, maybe as frustrating of an episode. Um, I shouldn't say. It. I hope you don't have near as frustrating an experience as I did. Um, on this situation. I hope I'm getting a little tired here. Uh, what am I trying to say? Um, I hope from me sharing what was a very challenging, um, gut-wrenching experience where things went really, really poorly, I hope that you as a listener can learn from that, apply some of those lessons to your program, and maybe prevent you from falling into the same type uh, situation. I know we've talked about a lot of these concepts before, but I don't know that we've ever truly shared exactly how bad it can be or like direct um, like why why this went bad. And really, I guess that experience probably modeled a lot of the questions I asked some of the guests I have on, like Steve Yackley. Hey, why do you do it this way? Or explain this because I've lived it. I've had the bad conception rate. A lot of us have. And I would say when you have it, take it on the chin. It happens to all of us. And yes, it's frustrating. But I I think if we can look at those situations and say, hey, where can we improve upon this? What can we learn about this situation? And where can we be better from them? Better from it? I think it can have an extremely positive impact on your program, on your projects, your business. Uh, if you can survive that experience, it can turn into really great things. Because without learning about that nutritional plane and how important it was, I probably don't have the feeding program, nutrition program, mineral program that I have now to achieve uh, some of the breedups that I've had, obviously, this fall apart. But other than that, it's been tremendously good. So anyway, 
Thank you guys for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, episode ideas, hit us up, shootsidepodcast at gmail.com. You can message us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, shootsidepodcast is the handle there. If you like what you're listening to, give us a review, preferably a five-star rating on whatever listening platform and a good and a review you know we we really appreciate positive feedback you have no idea how nice it is to get positive feedback on 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 the content that we're putting out so i greatly appreciate that and if you want to rock some merch check out the merch store it's pinned on the facebook you can click through get you a t-shirt or whatever tank top stuff like that but uh, anyway thank you guys for the support We appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for the support. I very much appreciate it. I appreciate all the listeners out there. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, hopefully next week. Bye.